Okie dokie. The training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach you the high-end creativity that viewers expect. Inside the Edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerize your audience. Hello again, dear friends, and welcome back to another episode of your favorite editing podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Bird, and I hope you're having a great week wherever you are in the world. We've got a great show for you this week. Uh, I think it's a really interesting subject that really gets into the mechanics of crafting a career in editing. You know, so much of our value and employability out there in the marketplace really is a matter of perception and how we craft how a client looks at us. So on this episode, I want to talk through some of the psychological factors that can create a kind of unique aura around us that makes us hard to resist as a creative artist. I think we've got all the ingredients for an interesting and most importantly useful conversation. Also, don't forget part two of our live bootcamp series on the art of editing with music is tomorrow. That is Saturday, the 12th of February at 3 p.m. London time. I'll take you through a whole bunch of things we're going to be studying on tomorrow's webinar and why these skills are essential for the modern day editor later on in the show. So stay tuned for that. Okay. Let's dive straight in to this week's creative discussion. I remember reading many years ago that the great artist Michelangelo would never let anyone see his work while it was in progress. Legend has it that he even refused the Pope entry into his studio while working on one of his famous sculptures. In fact, it wasn't that uncommon at all amongst Renaissance artists to resist the constant pleading of the public to see their work as they toiled day and night for months and sometimes years on end. This fact always kind of intrigued me as it gave a rare glimpse into the mind of the artist, not about their art, but about the psychology and the perception that they had deliberately built for the public. Through trial and error, over many centuries, these artists had realized the fact that if you want to appear godlike amongst mere mortals, then amazement and astonishment were the emotions and perceptions you had to create in your audience. And these would never be achieved if you revealed the slow and arduous artistic process to the viewer. Fast forward a few centuries, drop the marble and oil paints and pick up a mouse, keyboard and timeline and we can still use some of these principles in our artistic lives today to great effect. Although wildly different in most ways, there are still many similarities to the way artists operate today. Artists are rarely, if ever, independently wealthy and must find financially wealthy individuals or organizations to become their benefactors in artistic expression. We must still cultivate as many of these as possible in order to pay our way through life. A successful artist could earn a comfortable living in many ages throughout the centuries, and like them today, so can an editor. 
But if you want to be rich, you don't go into editing or even filmmaking. It's an artistic expression, and while it provides a comfortable life if you succeed, millionaires are rarely made. The fulfillment of a creative life is not found in money, it's found in art and the expression of our individual voice in whatever medium we've chosen. If you look back, money and art have never really been the best of bedfellows for hundreds if not thousands of years going back to ancient Rome and Greece and beyond. It's almost a cliché in the artistic world that artists are all broke and need people with money around them. This comes from many different reasons, but so often because while amazing at their individual art form, many of them do not understand the psychology of how to sell themselves out in the marketplace. I was indoctrinated to this fact over many years as a child. My father would take any opportunity he had to take me on long visits to art galleries and museums and tell me in his thick London cockney accent about the lives of his favorite painters and how they often struggled to make ends meet. Right, this geezer's Rembrandt, he's brilliant and I'm going to tell you all about him. As I entered the filmmaking world and studied the successful and unsuccessful people around me, it became obvious to me that while you of course had to excel at whatever part of the art form you were in, editing, directing, producer, camera, sound, whatever, that was only part of the magic formula. It was also your behavior, how you carried yourself, how you spoke, how you interacted with clients. In short, how you sold yourself. Now, the interesting thing is, is that selling and the psychology of selling oneself can come in many different forms. But in this discussion, I want to talk through one particular angle to illustrate something which I found incredibly useful throughout my career. And that is perceived value. Now, whether we like it or not, value or the lack of value is something we humans generate intentionally or unintentionally. And if we want to craft a career in editing, then it would be wise to look at how to create value in ourselves in the mind of the people who control access to our art form. I, like so many editors before me, stumbled across this completely by accident one day on a job in an edit suite in Soho, central London. And like many realizations in life, I didn't intentionally think about how to create value with a client. I made a mistake and was given the golden opportunity of seeing the opposite, how I had destroyed my value. You know, in those early days, I was so eager to please my clients, I would literally do anything or say anything to ingratiate myself to them. I had little in the way of professional boundaries and didn't understand anything about the psychology of how the edit suite works. I remember the exact circumstances because it had such a profound effect on the relationship with the director that I was working with and then personally for me afterwards. Now it may appear subtle when I explain it but in my experience and the older I get the nuances and real understanding of things are often in the ever so slight variances, those thousands of shades of grey between the black and white. It was in the middle of a week-long job on an entertainment show. One of those jobs where, you know, if they like you, they'll book you for months to come and, and possibly on multiple seasons. You become a favourite. I didn't know the director, but we were cutting small VT promo type scenes, three or four minutes long. I was trying to have fun, you know, cracking the occasional joke, being interested in their comments and things like that. You might probably say that I was trying just to 
bit too hard to be liked by the client. But, you know, what did I know? I was just starting out. We were cutting this particular part of a sequence when the director told me that he was pretty sure we were going to run into problems because of something in the way that a character had said or not said that was essential to the scene and which didn't match up to what the producers wanted. Apparently, he tried to get them to say or do what he'd wanted them to do, but the person just didn't play ball for whatever reason. It happens all the time in Unscripted. But I could detect the slightly stressful way in which the director was talking about it to me, explaining the problem. It was, in all honesty, one of the problems which would probably cause issues with the senior producers. And so this wasn't to be taken lightly. I remember looking at the raw footage, jumping ahead and just starting to cut the problem while the director was checking their email on the computer in the room. I said nothing, just got on with it. And within a couple of minutes, I kind of fixed the problem and cut it perfectly. What do you think of this? I said to the director. He looked up from his computer, slightly distracted, as though I'd interrupted him. I played the sequence, watching the reflection of his face in the client monitor. An old editing trick to see if they like our work without looking at them directly. And I saw a look of amazement and joy cross his face. The error was gone. And I'd made the characters say what we needed them to say seamlessly while cutting around some of the visual difficulties. You couldn't spot the problem at all. And so he was out of trouble. It was as if a weight had lifted from his shoulders and his mood changed dramatically. He became lighter almost immediately and spoke with a much more positive tone. I remember thinking, that has obviously been keeping him up for a few nights. After the fact that he was off the hook had sunk in, he looked at me with a kind of new expression on his face. Like I said, this was the first time we'd worked together, and there can often be a slight aura of mistrust in some directors when they work with us, you know, in the, in the first few days or so. Can they trust us? You know, are we good enough for their project? You can kind of sense it in some of them. But he now looked at me as though I'd done something astonishing, something amazing. My value had gone up massively in his eyes in just a few short minutes. There was hidden creative depths in this editor, he seemed to be saying with his eyes. This guy is brilliant and he proceeded to tell me so. Now, I remember being quite shocked by the change in behavior and mood so quickly principally because I knew that what I had done was, was actually not that amazing or brilliant, but a simple fix in my eyes. You know, a thousand editors could have done it. But I basked in the glow and the warm feeling of being thought of as amazing, as it was very new to me. I'd risen 10 steps on the ladder seemingly straight away, and to be honest, it felt great. It was then that I noticed another urge in me, the urge to share and confide so that I could pull myself closer and ingratiate myself even more with this client and solidify our relationship. This was, after all, a potentially long job. And so the more they liked me, the less chance I'd have to go off hunting for work to pay my rent in the coming months. And it was here I made my fatal mistake. Oh, it was actually quite easy and not difficult at all, I told him and smiled eagerly. I then proceeded to tell him in a very step-by-step -step way the simple things that I did and that anyone can do. He stared at me and then stared at the timeline as I saw him process that simple correction. The realization came over him and then he looked at me again. 
But this time it was different. That glow had gone. That genius type look that he'd given me just a few seconds before had disappeared. Anyone can do it was written all over his face. And I was a mere mortal again. You know, I never reached the exalted highs of admiration again with that client. And I didn't get booked again on that show after the job ended. But I came away with a huge piece of psychological gold. Never again would I tell how the sausage was made. There's an uneasy paradox at the heart of what just happened, I remember thinking. On one side, I want to be a truthful artist and not manipulate my circumstances or anyone. But on the other hand, I have just walked into a situation that highlights one of the most interesting aspects of human psychology value perception. And most importantly, one that I created myself. Like Dorothy and her peek behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz, the magic and the power of value evaporates immediately when we articulate the orderliness of what we do. This is why the great Renaissance artists never let paupers or popes into their studios to see how they worked, because they've become mere mortals again. They never articulated the process of what they went through because that immediately devalued their work. You know, the shock and awe factor of a great work being revealed doesn't happen. The ordinary and everyday are not special in the minds of potential clients. And value is often created by how mass psychology works. A key component to that is withholding information, not giving it. It's like seeing a really good magic trick performed. You know, there's a mystery to it that blows your mind. Deep down, yeah, we know it's a trick, but that doesn't stop us marveling at its perfect execution. But then, of course, if the magician tells us and shows us how simple it was, the magic is gone, and that perception changes within us. It plummets. Here's the thing, the most important skill in editing is not narrative arcing or pace and timing or how to score or how to stylize or cut a beautiful montage. It's the ability to get employed over and over again. People paying us for our artistic abilities makes us a professional editor. If we're not paid, then it's just a hobby. And so we really need to utilize every tool out there in order to make that happen. Now, don't get me wrong. Value perception is not about lying to clients. It's not about manipulating them or being dishonest in some way. It's about tapping into a deep psychological need that we all have to have value in our lives. It's about withholding information in order to create a powerful effect. What's so interesting about it is that you, you, know, you actually have to be really good at what you do, otherwise it doesn't work. This isn't the emperor's new clothes. There's this common misconception that talent is all you need in an art form, like editing. But the truth is, is that talent is just the starting point. Talent will get you through the door and into the editor's chair, but talent alone won't keep you there. And it's a shame that so many people discover this too late in their careers. People don't always tell you what they're thinking, says Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lambs follow-up. They just see to it that you don't advance in life. I love that line. This aura then, this glow around us, must be cultivated as well as our creative skills. And we do it by withholding explanations of how we do our work. We really must resist the urge to cheapen our skills by disclosing 
how simple they are. If it's so easy, then why do we need this editor at all? Admiration increases massively if something appears naturally to us, like we have untapped reservoirs of creativity that the client doesn't know about. They look at us differently. You know, in the first few tutorials of Inside the Edit, I kind of liken the professional editor to watching a swan on a pond. They move so gracefully and with such ease. It's beautiful to watch. But under the surface, their feet are flapping like crazy. That flapping is built upon years of practice, years of research, years of toil in the dark when no one's around. And it all adds up to the set of reflexive skills that sometimes we don't even know the value of ourselves. And throwing it away in a simple explanation cheapens the difficult creative journey we've all been on. As the saying goes, we don't know how much coal we've shoveled. We're just looking at the shovelful right now. And so here's one final point to consider as well. We are editors. We work in the least known art form in filmmaking. Hardly anyone in the industry really knows or even understands the true depths of what we do every day on our timelines. It's not like directing or producing or camera or sound or anything like that. That happens in front of a lot of people and many, many books have been written about it. Not so with editing. Our craft happens behind closed doors and in isolation. We're still considered magicians and masters of the dark arts of shot manipulation and meaning. Every other art form in filmmaking isn't shrouded in the same kind of mystery like editing, and so we should be keen to exploit that fact. It's natural to want to appear clever, to appear talented, to tell our clients how easy it is. But if we resist the urge, we create something much more powerful indeed. We create high value. Every time I got complimented or a director thought I'd created something amazing, something that we can all do as pro editors, I took the compliment graciously, smiled and said something broad like, yeah, that seemed to work really well. And then I moved on to the next task. I'd concealed the skills and effort behind my work and given off the impression that this has appeared effortless and it helped me out immensely. Clients looked at me differently and most importantly, they wanted to work with me again. These many shades of grey in the psychological understanding of the edit suite are so interesting and studying and applying them can do wonders for a successful career in editing outside of the essential creative abilities we need on a timeline. Of course, we've got to be fantastic at editing, but that goes without saying. If you come through that door, directors and producers are just going to assume that you're great at your job. It's what happens afterwards that can often define our career. In today's highly competitive marketplace, why don't we utilize every tool at our disposal, creative, psychological, or anything else? Looking for that edge in any area is not just recommended, it's essential. I hope you enjoyed this week's creative discussion, dear friends. Reach out to us on social and let us know if this week's talk has helped you out. Have you searched far and wide for a course on how to edit and found nothing? Do you like the creative detail we go into on this podcast? Have you tried to learn editing and just been inundated with courses that teach the software 
and not the editing. Well, you're not alone. At Inside the Edit, we are the first and only company to create an online course that takes you through every single stage of the creative editing process, from baby steps to high-end professional. Through hundreds of visual examples, creative concepts, and stylization principles, you learn the secrets of this amazing art form. The Inside the Edit course will transform you into a powerful creative editor. Try it out for free over at InsideTheEdit.com. Okay, it's time for What Am I Watching? We got a great one this week. So much can be learned from this one. I'm really excited to tell you about it. I think I may have mentioned it on a previous episode of Once Upon a Timeline way back, maybe in the first season, but it definitely warrants another mention and an in-depth viewing. The 2015 documentary Hitchcock Truffaut is an absolute gem. It is full of fascinating insights into one of the masters of cinema, but also into the art of filmmaking itself. It tells the story of the famous book that Francois Truffaut published in 1966 based on his week-long interview with Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock, who was at the time perceived as a kind of light entertainer and not really taken that seriously, not only talked about the craft of filmmaking in such an unpretentious way, he also dissected his particular style in tremendous detail. In the book, you see the sequential breakdowns of his famous scenes, with his analysis of how he created them, the camera moves, the angles, and the intended effect on the audience. He designed the cutting patterns on the page, which is why it's a treasure trove for any editing artist. This kind of detail had never really been seen in the public domain before, and the documentary has interviews with many of the giants of modern cinema who talk about the effect that reading this book had on how they approached the craft. Everyone from David Fincher to Wes Anderson to Paul Schrader to Martin Scorsese all talk about the impact of the book's content on the filmmaking world and their own personal creative journeys. It's also full of those delicious one-liners that Hitchcock was so famous for and that can act like mantras to us all when constructing scenes. I have a favourite little saying to myself, says Hitchcock at one point. Logic is dull. Directed by Kent Jones and edited by Rachel Reichman, Hitchcock Truffaut is my recommendation for this week. A great doc for any editor. So it's your last chance to join us for tomorrow's live boot camp webinar, dear friends. It's the second part of our series on how to cut music in our projects, a completely underutilized and unknown part of the art form. I'm going to be dismantling it for two hours tomorrow on Saturday, the 12th of February at 3 p.m. London time. You can ask me as many questions as you want, and we're going to go through tons of techniques you can use right away in your projects. 
we're going to be looking at how we manipulate the duration of music tracks to devastating effect, how we can cut them up and retine them in order to align them with the most powerful visual and dialogue elements in our sequences. This really is high-end editing. We're going to be looking at the advanced analysis of a track, its tempo, its tonality, its emotional impact, so we can design the most effective score to our scene possible. All of these techniques are essential in every single editing genre. Directors, producers and production companies can spot editors who are talented with music from a mile off, principally because these skills are so rare in the editing world. Come and join me tomorrow to make sure you're one of them. The live session costs just £49 and you have a whole month to watch the recording. Part one of the series is also available to purchase if you missed it. Go on over to the bootcamp page at insidetheedit.com to book your front row seat. Okay, so what is the question for this week's Ask Paddy? Well, we've got a great one from Andy in Athens, Greece. Andy's asked, how important is it for the editor to be interested in the theme of the documentary when they're choosing a project? Great question, Andy. Let me give you my thoughts. I think there's a number of factors at play here. Let's go through some of them. Firstly, it depends on where we are in our careers. So what do I mean by that? Well, in the first five years or so of our career as an editor, the likelihood is, is that we'll be trying to establish ourselves in the industry. We'll be searching for clients. We'll be working on as many films as possible and trying to climb the ladder of whatever genre we like to work in. In Andy's case, this would be documentaries, but of course it could be commercials, music videos, drama, promos, whatever. The list is endless and the logic is pretty similar in most genres. This usually means that at this point in our development, client acquisition and working with respected broadcasters or studios or production companies is more important on our CV than the actual work we're doing. Much of employment on a film is about trust. Can this company trust us with this amount of footage valued at this amount of money? And can they trust us to deliver it to the best it can be and on time? In the earlier days of our career, having the right brands, the right production companies or broadcasters on our CV is incredibly important. And so getting in to do a job at a top company, even though the project isn't that great, is more important than an amazing project that no one sees or is from an unknown group of filmmakers. It may be worthy and powerful and amazing, etc., etc., but it won't help create a sustained and continuous paycheck throughout a career. And this leads on to the second factor, which is money. How financially secure are you? Do you have enough money in the bank to take a hit on the rate for a brilliant but low-budget documentary so you can pay your rent? How independent are you financially to go around and only choose the films that you want to work on, which, in all honesty, don't come around all the time? So if you take these two factors and chart where you are on them, higher on the ladder with more money in the bank is obviously the best case scenario than only just starting out and need to earn money right now to pay this month's rent. 
Then and only then can you make an assessment as to how much you like a project and how much you need it. There's a difference between the two and it's something we definitely should look at. The general rule is that once you've established yourself and you have a large and respected CV with a good range of high-end clients and projects that you've worked on, and this has in turn created an acceptable level of financial buffering, you can then be much more selective about what you want to work on. Clients come to you. You don't go out and have to search for them anymore. Now, I and many editors like me have spent years working on all kinds of projects that we not only don't feel drawn to, but we don't actually enjoy. But we had to pay our rent, and that superseded my personal creative tastes when I was broke. If I got one or two jobs in in those first five years that were really interesting to me, then I'd consider that year a real success. But the further I got in my career and the more well-known I became at production companies and broadcasters, the more choice I had and could be more picky about what interested me and how much I charged because I had multiple clients vying for my work at any one time. You know, that dream of only working on the things we want can definitely be a reality, but we need to realize that it comes only after a lot of hard work in establishing ourselves in whatever genre we're working in. And that comes after thousands of hours on the timeline. And not all of those hours are going to be on films that we were really drawn to. We kind of got to do the grunt work. It is possible and we can do it. It just requires a large amount of focus and drive over a long period of time. The fuel to any successful career in editing. The higher up we go, the more choices we have to work on what intrigues us. T'was ever thus. And considering the subject of this week's podcast, I guess it's also good to chuck in a bit of extra psychology into the mix. Never turn down a job if you don't like it. Always say you're booked already. This gives the impression that you are in high demand and that client or production companies will circle round to you on the next film they'll be staffing up on in the not-too-distant future. And that might be something you like. Desperation is a very unappealing trait with clients, so stay away from it and always remember its opposite. Nothing draws a crowd like a crowd. That's a fundamental part of how mass psychology works. I hope this answers your question, Andy, and thanks so much for sending it in. Okay, episode eight of this third season of Once Upon a Timeline is now in the can. A massive shout out to our longtime partners over at Universal Production Music who supply every single track for the show. If you're sourcing music right now for your current projects, go on over and check out their site. They have over half a million tracks in every conceivable genre, tone, tempo, and mood. Or if you like any of the tracks that we've used on this or any other episode of Once Upon a Timeline, just go on over to Inside the Edit and check out this episode's page for links to every single track. We're a small company here at Inside the Edit, just a few passionate filmmakers trying to spread the word about our beautiful art form. 
Helping us grow our creative community is really appreciated. So please don't forget to tag us on social and share it with your filmmaking friends. However, if you have 30 seconds to spare, a rate and review on Apple Podcasts is also really, really appreciated. Thank you so much for being part of the Inside the Edit community. I really enjoyed making this week's podcast, dear friends, and I really hope you enjoyed listening to it. Have a fantastic week, and I will see you very soon on another episode of Once Upon a Timeline. Stay cool, stay safe, and stay cutting. Thank you.